but it's good to be back, and I want to invite you uh, to take your Bibles and turn for the last time to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 16, verses 25 through 27, and today we're going to conclude our study of the most important book in the New Testament and perhaps the entire Bible. Romans chapter 16, verse 25, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. Amen. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity that we've had uh, to study this uh, amazing uh, book. And Lord, I have been um, reminded these last four weeks, and I'm keenly aware this morning, that I don't deserve to be here. Um, I don't, you don't need me to be here, uh, but you have just, by your grace, granted me the privilege and the joy uh, of getting up and, and preaching your word. And so I pray that I would do that in a manner that's pleasing to you today and that is helpful uh, for all of us and that uh, we would just get a sense that your spirit is working amongst us, illuminating us, giving us deeper understanding into uh, these verses and, uh, and then also helping us put them into practice in our lives. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. Well, when we began our verse-by-verse exposition of Romans a number of years ago, uh, a number of you were making and taking bets about how long it might take for us to get through it. I think the going rate was about 70 years. Well, I have that by the grace of God, three and a half years and a total of 74 sermons, one shy of 75, I think the most sermons that I've ever preached on a book uh, so far which may sound like a lot, but it's really nothing compared to other preachers like James Montgomery Boyce, who faithfully pastored 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for many years before the Lord took him home. Uh, he preached 239 sermons over the course of eight years when they went through the book of Romans. So uh, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, or if you're feeling spared, uh, or you're like, hey, keep going, we want more. Um, but honestly, part of me is sad that uh, I'll no longer be spending time every week interacting and contemplating the great truths contained in this book with men like James Montgomery Boyce, who have become my friends, guys like John Stott and S. Lewis Johnson and Douglas Moo and Thomas Schreiner and Christopher Ashe and Kent Hughes and Warren Wearsby and John MacArthur and Stuart Oliott. Uh, these are men that I've just grown to really appreciate uh, their insight into what Paul wrote here. But having said that, I don't want any of us to see this final sermon as the end of our study of Romans, but just the beginning of a lifetime love affair with this prime rib portion of God's Word. I think the last thing the Lord would want us to do is just to kind of file away what we've learned together over these past few years and just kind of move on to something else. Romans is a, a book that we should return to over and over again in order to get a better grasp of its theological truths and to get better at applying the, the many practical principles it contains. 
And it is toward that end that I want to share the following quote from William Tyndale, who some of you may know was the one responsible for translating the Bible into English for the first time. And uh, he wrote these words at the beginning of the prologue that he wrote uh, to Romans. This is back 1534, okay, back in the 1500s. And apparently, for the most part, he just simply translated Uh, what Luther said in his preface to his German translation of the New Testament. So here we're actually not just hearing William Tyndale, we're probably hearing a little bit of Luther's heart as well. And as you know, it was the book of Romans that God used to save, right, to convert this young Catholic monk we know today as Martin Luther, one of the heroes of the Christian faith. But this is what he wrote, for as much as this epistle is the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament and most pure gospel, that is to say glad tidings, and also is a light and a way unto the whole scripture, I think it meet that every Christian man not only know it, but wrote, or excuse me, by wrote and without the book. We just, we're talking about needing to memorize these lyrics so that if, if we don't have right, a, a screen or whatever, a, a, a projector, we can, we can know them by heart. That's what he's saying. He was suggesting that, that you memorize the entire book of Romans. So you don't even need it. You, you just got it all up here and right in here. But also exercise yourself there and ever more continually as with the daily bread of the soul. No man verily can read it too often or study it too well, for the more it is studied, the easier it is, the more it is chewed, the pleasanter it is, and the more groundly it is searched, the preciouser, that was a word back then apparently, the more precious things are found in it. So great treasure of spiritual things lieth hid therein. That was how he started his preface. Listen to how he ended it. Now go to, reader, and according to the order of Paul's writings, even so do thou. In other words, now go do it. Don't just study it, but do it. First, behold thyself diligently in the law of God and see there thy just damnation. Secondly, turn thine eyes to Christ and see there the exceeding mercy of thy most kind and loving Father. Thirdly, remember that Christ made not this atonement that thou shouldest anger God again, neither died he for your sins, that thou shouldest live still in them. Nor did he cleanse you that you should return as a swine unto thine old puddle again, but that thou shouldest be a new creature And live a new life after the will of God and not of the flesh. So, if Tyndale and or Luther were standing here this morning, they would encourage us to continually, perhaps on a daily basis, mine the depths of the book of Romans by reading it and meditating it on and even even memorizing it. And what's more, they would challenge us to no longer live as a slave to sin, but as a living and holy sacrifice who instead of being conformed to the world is being transformed more and more into the image of Christ. Well, with those words in mind, let's look at these last three verses. And some refer to these verses as a benediction, whereas others refer to them as a doxology, when in fact it's really a combination of both. A benediction pronounces God's blessing upon God's people, whereas a doxology simply praises God. 
And Paul began with what sounds like a benediction. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel, right? That's very traditional uh, benediction, very customary for Paul. But he actually intended it to be a doxology in which he praised God for the saving work that he accomplished through his son Jesus Christ. And this was a, a fitting way to end this letter to the churches in Rome um, because you may be familiar with the statement that uh, theology results in doxology. Have you, have you heard that statement before? Theology results in doxology. You say, what does that mean? Well, when you study what the Bible teaches about God, um, about Jesus Christ, about the depravity of man, about the sovereignty of God and salvation, that's the theology, right? It should make us want to worship and praise and honor and obey God. That's doxology. And we see this often in Paul's letters. He would be explaining some deep theological truth, and he would just suddenly burst out in praise to God. In fact, we've already seen one of, uh, seen this uh, earlier in the book of Romans. Turn back to Romans chapter 11. And this is how he, he, he um, ended uh, the first section, if you will, of this letter after talking about God's plan of salvation in verse 33 of chapter 11, he burst forth in this doxology. He said, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. And so here in chapter 16, Paul's doxology is actually the, the longest closing doxology of all his letters, which makes sense. This is the, not only the largest letter he wrote, but it is the most significant. We mentioned this at the beginning that, that when we started studying this, that Romans is considered by many to be the greatest theological treatise ever written. It is the clearest and most comprehensive explanation and application of the gospel in writing, sacred and secular. And so Paul began his magnum opus, if you remember, back uh, again three and a half years ago, uh, by describing how the whole world is guilty of sin and under the wrath of God because of their ungodliness and their unrighteousness. This is chapter 1, chapter 2, and then half of chapter 3 up to verse 20. And then from that point, he went on to explain how God graciously provides the gift of righteousness. He provides what we lack to those who trust in his son Jesus and the work he accomplished through his perfect life, perfect life and his propitiatory death. And in chapters 3, 4, and 5, Paul defined and illustrated the doctrine of justification, along with propitiation and imputation, which simply means that Christ's death on the cross and man's place satisfied God's wrath against man's sin. And so when anyone acknowledges their sin and places their faith alone in what Christ did for them on the cross to make them right with God, God declares them righteous or right with him and accepts them by virtue of the fact that their unrighteousness is credited to or transferred to Christ's account and Christ's righteousness is transferred or credited to our account. That's the doctrine of imputation. 
And so that's all there in verse, chapters 3, 4, and 5. And then in chapter 6 and 7, Paul shifted his focus from justification to sanctification, and he explained how those who have been made right with God no longer have to live as slaves of sin. And yet, while we have been delivered from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, we still struggle with the presence of sin as a result of the world, our own flesh, and the devil. But the good news is, we can mortify or put to death the deeds of our flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit, who grants us assurance that we are truly God's children while we eagerly await for the return of Christ when we will be glorified. And you ready for this? Never sin again. What an awesome day that will be. And in the meantime, we can live with the confidence that no one or nothing can or ever will separate us from God's love for us. And then we get to chapters 9, 10, and 11, where Paul dove deep into God's sovereign choice of Israel and how his plan of salvation involved them hardening their hearts for a season and having to be set aside temporarily in order to provide the Gentiles an opportunity to be saved and be included with the Jews in this new entity called the church. And then finally, in chapters 12 through 16, Paul laid out how all this theology should affect the way those who've experienced this salvation in Christ should live their lives in the body of Christ and also in the world. Now, as Paul concluded his letter, he alluded to and summarized a number of the major themes he had addressed throughout the letter, kind of like the, the close of a symphony when a, a, a composer uh, weaves together the main melodies and, and, and the most memorable refrains are repeated to create this majestic crescendo. It's like, hey, I remember, that's kind of the, I hear all the, you know, when you listen to the Star Wars theme song, right? There's certain little runs that just kind of come up uh, from time to time. Usually they start at the beginning, throughout, and then at the end. And so this is what Paul is doing. In fact, like a, a lot of musical masterpieces, Paul's letter ended where it began. He actually took his readers back to the beginning. And so I want you to look back with me really quick at Romans chapter 1 and see if this doesn't sound familiar. Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. So we hear echoes of these first six verses here in these last three verses in Romans 16. And so perhaps, as he so often did at the end of writing one of his letters, Paul took the pen out of the hand of his amanuensis, which we were introduced to um, in verse 22. Tertius, who wrote this letter, greets you. And so he probably took that quill from him, and uh, perhaps uh, wrote these final words with his own hand. And so here in verses 25 through 27, what I want us to see this morning is, is four reasons, four reasons why 
God is worthy to be praised and proclaimed by those he has saved. There's reasons why God is worthy to be praised by us and proclaimed by us. What are these four reasons? Number one, his power in digging us deep down in the gospel. His power in digging us deep in the gospel. Notice verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Now in the opening chapter of Romans, Paul mentioned that the reason why he wanted to visit them was so that they would be established and strengthened in their relationship with God. This is verse 11, chapter 1, verse 11. For I long to see you that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. And so this was Paul's passion to help people establish and maintain a deep, strong, stable spiritual life. And now here he's acknowledging that ultimately God is the only one who establishes or strengthens people. The, the word establish means to, to set up something and make it stable or to start up something and, and to strengthen and support it, to, to bring something about and to bolster it or to form something and to fortify or firm it up. And so I think what Paul was saying here is that through the power of the gospel, God saves us and he secures us. You'll remember the, probably the most familiar verse uh, in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Some would say this is the theme verse. Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the what? Of the gospel, for it is the power of God for what? Salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so God uses the power of the gospel to save us, but also to secure us. Philippians Chapter 1, verse 6 says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a what? Good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, God makes us believers and he keeps us believers. The, the image that came to my mind was, was planting a tree. And if you've ever done that uh, or have seen someone do that, you know, they get out there and they dig the hole real deep and they've got that, that, that root ball, that ball of roots, and they get that down there situated really good and, and they establish that tree, they set that tree in that hole and they cover it up with dirt. And then if they're really good, what they do is they stake it, right? And they put stakes around it and they tie it off. Why? So that it grows what? It goes straight. And it just stabilizes and strengthens. So they establish that tree in the ground and then they support it. So it can grow strong and healthy. And so Paul's desire here was for the Christians in Rome and the churches in Rome to be firmly rooted and grounded in the gospel. And so for us as individual Christians and, and for us as a church, we need to have a rock-solid understanding and commitment to the gospel. Otherwise, we'll be weak and we'll waver, we'll wander. And those people who have never heard the gospel or have rejected the gospel, they are just that. They're, they're, they're weak. They, they, they waver. They wander. They're like a tumbleweed just kind of aimlessly blowing around out there without any foundation, without any direction. 
And that's why unbelievers live such unstable and unsettled and uncertain lives, and they have no purpose, they have no hope, they have no joy. And that's why we desperately need to hear and to heed the gospel. And so he says, now to him who is able to establish you, how or through what means, according to my gospel. And I think a better way maybe to translate this would be, that is the preaching of Jesus Christ. It's not like the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ are two separate things. They're one and the same. He's just expanding on his gospel. Well, what I'm talking about is preaching Jesus Christ. So uh, Paul, if you remember, started off his gospel. We just read it, uh, or started off this letter by referring to the gospel as the gospel of who? Whose gospel ultimately is it? It's God's gospel, the gospel of God. But then shortly after that, he referred to it as his gospel, chapter 2, verse 16, on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. He even mentioned it, uh, mentioned it as his gospel in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. Well, what's up with that? Paul seems to be maybe overstepping his bounds there, Forgetting it's God's gospel, why is it now his gospel? Well, I think why, why he said it that way or called it that is because God had called him to be a herald of the message of salvation, which he had revealed to him and entrusted him to bring it to the Gentiles. And uh, Galatians chapter 1, Paul gives a defense of his gospel, if you will, the gospel that he preached. Galatians 1 verse 11, for I would have... For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me, my gospel, is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus Christ himself revealed the message of salvation to Paul and and said that he wanted him to go preach that message, not to his own people, the Jews, but to the Gentiles. Which, by the way, made Paul very unpopular with the Jews. And that's why they were always trying to, trying to run him out of town or, or worst case scenario, try to kill him. Well, again, notice it says, according to my gospel, that is the preaching of Jesus Christ. So another term for the gospel is the preaching of Christ. The, the person and work of Christ is the, the core of the gospel, the main point, the main focus of the gospel. And Paul uh, made that clear so many times in his letters. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then in chapter 2, I love this, and when I came to you, brethren, I didn't come with superior of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. In other words, it wasn't all about my eloquence or intelligence. He said, I determined to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ and what? And him crucified. Later, uh, towards the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and this is a great passage in preparation for the resurrection next Sunday, Paul presents the gospel. 
1 Corinthians 15, 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which also you stand, by which also you were saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So here it is. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that here it is, the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the, that's the gospel in a nutshell. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then one last reference in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. He said, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. So if you're hung up by the fact that Paul was calling it his gospel, he says, hey, I wasn't preaching myself. I was preaching Jesus as Lord. So what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news about how we can be rescued from our sin through the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the instrument, the gospel, that message is the instrument, the tool that God uses to establish us, to save us, and to sanctify us. And I think it's sad that once we're saved... Too often we move on from the gospel to what we consider the deeper, meatier truths. Listen, there is no weightier, meatier truth than the gospel. There's nothing more compelling to our lives as Christians than the gospel. And and I, for one, I don't know where you're at, but I, for one, am grateful for the gospel-centered resurgence in the church at large over the past 20 years or so. It seems there's a greater focus on the gospel and the books that are being written, uh, the songs that are being written, all of which are designed to help us remember that the gospel is not just for unbelievers, it's also for believers. I think a lot of us as Christians suffer from gospel amnesia. We forget who we are in Christ. We forget how loved we are by God. We forget what we deserved and what we received instead. We, We forget we were spiritual orphans who have been adopted out of the squalor of our sin by a gracious heavenly father and given an eternal inheritance as a child of God. And every once in a while, the Lord provides, an, a, 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 I guess, a lightning bolt to, to strike us, to remind us of the awesomeness of the gospel. And sometimes he uses a verse in his word, or maybe it's an experience that we have, a song we sing, or um, I'll never forget, I've shared this story before, but uh, there was a couple uh, years ago here at Lakeside, and they had adopted a little girl from China, and uh, a beautiful little gal, and, and uh, I'll, I'll remember we were over at uh, Incredible Pizza Company, and we were doing some event with the children, and I was talking to this dad, and and uh, I was honestly having a hard time concentrating and staying focused on our conversation because I couldn't help out of the corner of my eye seeing his little adopted daughter, this little girl from China, uh, had, you know, grew up in no- with nothing. And there she is si- sitting at Incredible Pizza Company with this plate of pie and ice cream. And she was just like, just having a ball, sitting there just, you know, eating her cherry pie and ice cream. And, and I, was, I was listening sort of to this guy as we were talking. I was just, my mind was just processing this beautiful picture of the gospel. 
that that's me. I'm that little orphan, right, that was taken out of a place where I had nothing, and I'm at Incredible Pizza Company, right, eating pie and ice cream. And uh, again, it was all of grace. And guess what? That wasn't her choice to come here. It was her parents' choice, right, to bring her here. So we need to regularly ponder God's amazing love for us and that, that even though we were his enemies who deserved nothing but death and hell, he poured out his wrath against our sin on his beloved son and declared us righteous. We need to live in light of the fact that since Christ died for our sins, we will never have to experience God's wrath against our sin. And nothing we do or don't do can ever change our position in Christ. Are you ready for this? Or make God love us any more or any less. We need to remember that all of our past, present, and future sins are forgiven. We're forgiven at the cross. And there is now no condemnation for us who are in Christ. Nothing can ever separate us from God's love for us in Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. And we need to bask in the gloriousness of the gospel. And that's what we've had the privilege of doing for the last three and a half years studying through the book of Romans. And so I trust that, that, that studying Romans has solidified your comprehension of the gospel and strengthened your commitment to the gospel. I hope it's confirmed in your mind why you needed to be saved. And how you were saved. And I hope it has compelled you to live the kind of life that you can and should live as a result of being saved. And I hope it's convicted you of the need to do whatever you can to help others get saved. All of this, I think, is part of what it means to be established or dug down deep in and through the gospel. All praise be to God. Amen? Well, why else does God deserve praise? Well, because of his providence in disclosing the gospel. His providence in disclosing the gospel. Look at what Paul uh, goes on to say here. In the middle of verse 25, he says, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but is now manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets. That's a mouthful there. What the main word to, to zero in on is the word mystery, which is used in the New Testament to describe a truth that was previously unknown, but has now been made known by God. It, it refers to a truth hidden in the mind of God from eternity past that we could never have discovered or figured out on our own apart from him revealing it to us. This is the first time Paul mentioned the mystery in this letter. Look back at chapter 11, verse 25, for I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So that whatever this mystery is, it includes the, it involves the Jews and the Gentiles coming together into one new group of people called the church. And Paul Probably the clearest place where he talks about this mystery and unpacks this concept of the mystery is Ephesians chapter 3. Turn there with me quickly. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul is uh, uh, explaining the stewardship that God had given him. 
As an apostle, this is Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief, by referring to this, when you read, uh, when you, read you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which, here it is, in other generations was not made known to the sons of men and has now been revealed to us holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit to be specific. What am I talking about? That the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So this mystery that that Paul referred to so often was the truth that Gentiles are included in his plan of salvation. In other words, Gentiles are fellow partakers with the Jews in all the promises of salvation in the Old Testament through the work of Christ and fellow participants with the Jews in the body of Christ. And notice he says, how how did he reveal this? How was this revealed back in verse 26? He says, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets. So God revealed or disclosed this mystery through the scriptures, particularly through the writers of the New Testament scriptures. When he talks about the, the, the prophets here, I think he's referring primarily to uh, the New Testament prophets. Uh, we just read in Ephesians uh, Chapter 3, uh, they're about the, the apostles and prophets, 3, three verse 5. In, in, in chapter 2, verse 20, that the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. In chapter 4, he talks about, and God gave some as apostles and some as prophets. Again, this is all New Testament references. Now, granted, the Old Testament, as you know, contains all sorts of prophecies and promises and types and shadows pointing to the coming of Christ and, and, and the suffering of Christ and the resurrection and reign of Christ. But until Christ actually arrived and allowed his disciples to understand, it was all unclear to everyone. And I love what uh, Jesus said in uh, Luke chapter 24, verse 44. And this is how, what Luke records here. Now he said to them, these are, this is Jesus, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which were written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Which, by the way, the, the prophets, the, the law of Moses, prophets, and Psalms are the three categories of the Old Testament, history, uh, poetry, and prophecy. In other words, a whole Old Testament points to me, guys. And it says this, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, They needed to be divinely illuminated in order to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. It didn't make sense to them. Even the Old Testament prophets didn't fully understand what they were seeing and what they were saying and were often puzzled by the things that were coming out of their mouths and uh, the things that uh, they were writing down with their pens. I've been reading through 1 Peter 
hint, hint, maybe our next study. But uh, this verse to me is fascinating. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you, though... Uh, through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Even the angels are scratching their head up in heaven trying to figure this all out. I made a statement to the Mighty Men guys on this past Wednesday when we were studying the book of Isaiah together. And uh, Isaiah has more, the book of Isaiah has more uh, prophecies of Christ than any other Old Testament book. It's quoted more in the New Testament or by the New Testament writers than any other Old Testament book. And I said this, that, that we understand as New Testament Christians what Isaiah was saying better than Isaiah did. It's kind of crazy to think about, isn't it? Why? Because God has opened our eyes to see and then, of course, we have the completed canon, right? We've got both the Old and New Testament and so it's helpful to kind of put the pieces together. Praise be to God. Amen? Thirdly, God deserves praise, and he deserves to be proclaimed because because of his purpose in disseminating the gospel. Because of his purpose in disseminating the gospel. Notice the end of verse 26, that uh, God has manifested this mystery by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith. So all of this has been according to the commandment of the eternal God. As one uh, translation, the NIV translation says, I think, so clearly, so that all the nations would believe and obey. That's the point of what Paul's saying here. We know that God has commanded that the gospel be shared with the entire world. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Jesus said, go and make disciples of what? Who? All nations. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And you will be my witnesses. In what? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest part of the earth. This was God's purpose. This was God's plan. And you may remember this. I said at the beginning of our study, I also reiterated it when we were uh, going through chapter 15 more recently when Paul was explaining the purpose of this letter that this letter was actually a missionary support letter in disguise. You're like, what? Paul wanted to inform them about the message that he had been called to preach and inspire them to partner with him to bring the glorious gospel to the ends of the earth, which at that time was where? Spain. Which Rome, the capital city, was on the doorstep, right, of Spain. And so as the center of the world at the time, Rome served as the natural launching pad for a missionary effort to the west, And so Paul was seeking to secure a commitment from the churches in Rome to help him reach those in Spain who had yet to hear the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. 
I appreciate what one commentator mentioned here. He said this, quote, while we do not know whether Paul made it to Spain, we know that the most important thing was accomplished, the writing of this letter to the believers in Rome. For in the writing of this letter, Paul ultimately equipped hundreds of thousands of churches and millions of believers to go not only to Spain, but to the regions beyond as well. And then he said this, this is so good, it's not enough to read the letter of Romans and come to grips with sin, to be saved, to make progress in sanctification, to understand God's sovereignty, to live sacrificially, submissively, and as a servant. If we have not agreed to be sent by God to those who do not yet embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, then we have not embraced all of Romans. God may send us across the street to a neighbor, across the ocean to another nation, but we must be willing to go. Our salvation, sanctification, and service are all means to the ultimate end of the Christian life that the nations might believe and obey him. So listen, if all we take away from these last three and a half years is some doctrinal truths, and even if we continue to bask in all of this rich theology that this book contains, if that's all we do, then we've missed the whole point of this letter. This letter describing the gospel was a means to an end to go spread the gospel. And so Paul's goal in writing this was not just to fill our heads with a bunch of knowledge, but to motivate us to share the gospel with those who have yet to hear it. Paul wanted us to be concerned about and, and committed to the gospel being spread to people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Leading, he said, to obedience of faith. For, for Paul, obedience was the natural result of true saving faith. This is a phrase he used in, in the first chapter, I, I read it already, Romans chapter 1, verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostles, bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. Uh, chapter 6, verse 17, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Chapter 15. Uh, verse 18, for I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. And then in chapter 16, verse 19, for the report of your obedience has reached all. He was commending the Roman believers for their obedience. And again, I think it's interesting that, that Paul emphasized the necessity of obedience in the very same letter where he adamantly insisted more than any other letter he ever wrote, that justification is by grace through faith alone. So this is a key phrase here, this, this leading to obedience of faith. What does this obedience of faith mean? I think it just serves as one of the clearest evidences in Scripture that being a Christian is not just believing some facts about Jesus or having some emotional experience with Jesus. It's living a life of obedience to Christ. True saving faith involves more than just accepting Jesus. We must surrender our lives to him and commit to follow him and obey him for the rest of our lives. John MacArthur made this comment. 
in his excellent commentary, he said this, a person who claims faith in Jesus Christ but whose pattern of life is utter disobedience to God's word has never been redeemed and is living a lie. Those are hard words, but they're true. And they're completely consistent with the fact that the gospel call is not just to believe, but to obey. John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, dealing out retribution, talking about when Christ returns and the punishment that he will bring to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And then Peter mentions, mentions it this way in the first couple of verses of his letter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, we who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. So how does Peter describe being saved? It's, it's to, to, to live a life of obedience to Christ. Now, again, it's not faith plus obedience that equals salvation, but obedient faith equals salvation. Faith that leads to obedience is proof or evidence that you're truly saved. So the gospel demands a wholehearted, unreserved commitment to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. I already read this. When Jesus commissioned his disciples to go into the world and preach the gospel, they were to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they were to teach them to what? Obey everything that I have commanded you. And in the context of, of Romans, the reason God revealed the mystery of the gospel in Christ is so people around the world who are living in disobedience to him would repent and begin to live in obedience to him. Why? Because God wanted his relationship with mankind that Adam and Eve destroyed through their disobedience to be restored along with the rest of his creation that is reeling from the effects of sin, Romans chapter 8. Praise be to God, amen? And then lastly, the fourth reason why God is worthy of praise and worthy to be proclaimed, it's because of his prudence in devising the gospel. His prudence in devising the gospel. That's a kind of a really bad synonym for wisdom, but I needed a P, so that's why it's there. His prudence in devising the gospel. Notice what he said here. Verse 27, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. Amen. While all of God's attributes are put on display through the gospel, it really all started with God's wisdom. Because that's what came up with the plan so that he could, he came up with a way where he could put on display all of his amazing attributes. And only an infinitely wise God could have thought up such a perfect, mind-blowing plan to redeem fallen sinners living in a broken world. Someone said it this way, who would have thought of rescuing and remaking a broken world like this? 
Who would have dreamed of the love that wrote salvation's plan and brought it down at infinite cost to undeserving human beings? We shall spend eternity wondering and worshiping and giving all the glory to the wise God in Jesus Christ. Again, in Ephesians chapter 3, where Paul unpacked this mystery, he went on to say, verse 10, that because this mystery is now revealed, it's so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, Christ is our, the meteor of all this. And it's ultimately through Christ that God manifested his wisdom. Colossians chapter 2, verse 3. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, that Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. Verse 30, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. So knowing who Christ is and what he has done to save us and believing that is, is that, that it's only through that that we can be saved, that is the key that unlocks the mystery of life, the meaning of life, and at the same time opens up the door of eternal life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father, what? But through me. John 17, 3. Jesus said, and this is eternal life, that they might know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. and salvation is all God's work and is solely by God's grace, guess what? God gets all the glory. We didn't deserve it. We couldn't have done anything to earn it. So we can't take any credit for it. And so as a result, for all eternity, we are going to be praising and thanking God for our salvation. And forever, by the way, be the glory forever. Forever's a long time. We, we can't even get our minds around forever. But, to worship God for saving us and to wonder why he saved us forever? Well, I think the point is the gospel is such a big deal that it's going to take an eternity to praise him for including us in his glorious plan of salvation. The book of Revelation gives us a peek into what this might look like and feel like Revelation chapter 5 is that powerful image of John crying out, an angel calling out with a loud voice, an angel who proclaimed the loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book of, or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, 
which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood and from every tribe and tongue and people and nation." You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever and the four living creatures kept saying amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. Well, that's how Paul ends the book of Romans. With a hearty, what? Amen. So be it. I believe it. And I would just say this. If you don't believe what Paul taught in the book of Romans, then you are still lost in your sin. And you need to repent. And you need to believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I think the bottom line application of Romans is simply praise God for the gospel and preach the gospel. That's it. If you want to know what's my takeaway, what's the so what of the last three and a half years, it's praise God for the gospel and that you were included in it and then go preach the gospel so that others can know the joy and the hope and the peace that you, you enjoy. Let's pray. God, may we passionately praise you for saving us and may we boldly and unashamedly preach the gospel so that you can save others through our witness. Thank you for this time that we've been able to have to dive into this amazing book. And in many ways, we just were scratching the surface, but it's enough to inspire us, to, to move us, to leave us in, leave us awestruck, leave us with a, a dropped jaw, with goosebumps, spiritual goosebumps, because we've been, uh, we're, we're in this. This book is about us, and uh, it's still happening, and we still have a part to play in it as we go forth and faithfully witness to those around us. And so, Lord, we thank you for this study. Help us to be faithful to praise you and to, to proclaim you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.